Welcome back to the 172nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why we have this idea that everybody has to always speak out about certain issues, even corporations, a interesting one about the Supreme Court and how they could make life harder for the homeless all across America, and a winning message that Democrats may have in their back pocket for 2024. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So when you see these different companies come out with all these statements when everything bad happens or when anything disagreeable happens and you feel as though, or at least I feel as though, they feel like we care and they feel like they have to put their point out there or they have to appease certain people that are buying their products or that are using their services. Do you actually believe them, one? And two, do you actually like it when they make these sort of statements? I think it's a question that needs to be asked. You already know my opinion. I want to hear yours. Throw it down in the comments section. And now let's jump to our first article that comes from the Washington Free Beacon. The headline reads, Corporate America, outspoken on Black Lives Matter and Ukraine, offers muted response to terror in Israel. So I'm just going to read you the first two paragraphs so you can understand exactly how the uh, Washington Free Beacon is deciding to frame this. Well, companies across the Western world were quick to issue statements condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine and killing of George Floyd. As Israel reels from the worst terrorist attacks in its history, many of those same companies are less outspoken. Deutsche Bank, which helped Hitler... <laughs> okay, yeah, it's a little bit... Um, it's a little bit over the top here, but basically they helped Hitler during the Holocaust, condemned Russian President Vladimir Putin's assault the day his tanks rolled into Ukraine. It took five days in an inquiry from the Washington Free Beacon, though, for the German bank to condemn Hamas's rampage, which killed over 1,000 people and set the stage for a multi-front war between Israel and its neighbors. Okay, so where they're coming from here, let's let's break it down a little bit. They're saying, well, hey, in the past, they have made these statements against the terrible actions of Vladimir Putin. They have come out and supported the protests during the Summer of Love when everybody was outraged at the murder of George Floyd. You know, things really hit a peak here in this country. So they're saying, okay, they came out then, but they didn't come out during these Israel attacks. What they're implying, at least from the way they're phrasing it, which is especially putting that emotional appeal to you right at the end, which killed over a thousand people and set the stage for a multi-front war between Israel and its neighbors. They're using this appeal to say they should be making these different statements. And the author doesn't necessarily pick one way to come down on it. He's not saying, yes, they absolutely have to do this, or maybe he's just pointing out the hypocrisy. But in pointing out the hypocrisy, I don't think you go far enough. How about this? How about these corporate entities? How about these giant companies? Instead of making statements that are going to virtue signal, that are going to get them maybe a little bit of extra coverage online, see, even Deutsche Bank came out against this. 
and try to play to that side, I guess in this case to one political side, because they're obviously not condemning all the different terrible things, why not just not say anything? Why push them to continue this standard going forward? Why are we going to enforce the rules of another player? And what I mean by that is, or why do conservatives want to do it? Let's put it even more like that. Conservatives for the longest time have literally been so angry at different banks, different organizations that come out and make these statements that condemn certain things, that support certain other things during certain uh, months that we have throughout the United States, whether it be Asian Heritage Month, uh, whether it be Hispanic Heritage Month, whether it be Pride Month, blah, 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 blah. All these different months, there's some sort of statement, there's some sort of virtue signal that comes out. And people on the right have said, okay, can we just, why are you doing this? This is extremely crazy. This is so stupid. And now the people on the right are coming over to these companies who have been pressured by the left before to make statements to support certain things or condemn certain things. Now they're doing the exact same thing. They've been hating on it for a long time. They have been saying that it's not okay, that I just want to buy my products from you. I don't want to know your politics. And now when they don't, do it the way they want to, they condemn people, or at least they call them out and pressure them and try to say, hey, because they literally said in here, it took five days and an inquiry from the Washington Free Beacon for the bank to change its mind and to condemn Hamas's rampage. That may be journalism. It's also activism. They are pushing their agenda, and they're trying to get these companies to condemn what they don't like. Get over it. We need to change the standard. We don't fall into the standard. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. If you don't like something on the other side of the aisle, then don't fall into the way that they do things. How about you do things differently? How about you don't actually push companies to condemn one thing? You condemn companies for pushing one thing. Oh, wow. It's a pretty simple concept in words at least. But this is the problem because we're going to hyperpolarize our economy as well as our society. Our society is already hyperpolarized, polarized. And if we take that up to the economic sphere as well, you know, there's this idea of the parallel economy that has been growing for years and years and years. And I do like the idea, but I hope it doesn't go too far. I hope it isn't solely an economy that only serves one side or the other. The thing about the parallel economy is, okay, it is a little bit more conservative based, but they're not going to completely wag you over the head with their politics. And then, because there is an alternative option to the old-style economy, and yes, you know, can you really differentiate the two? They're all part of one economy. But there's enough pressure from this quote-unquote parallel economy that these companies have to stop cowtailing to one side or the other. So this is a problem when you start playing by the other people's rules. Get off of it, okay? It's not a game that you want to be involved in. You don't want the company's virtue signaling to you or to somebody else. You want them to provide the best services possible, the best product possible, and wasting time on HR statements or different media statements. It doesn't help anybody. How does this help the customer? How does the Washington Free Beacon pushing for a condemnation of these attacks or the outright support of BLM or other or, or condemning Russia, how does this help the customer at all? No, it doesn't. And it's, it's frustrating, but... You know, I'm getting a little lost in the weeds. I want to jump to a second paragraph, not the second paragraph, but a second paragraph that I wanted to bring up, which is where 
this author quite literally points out that it has been utilized by social justice movements in the past, and yet it also admits a few paragraphs earlier that now the Washington Free Beacon is doing the same thing, or at least similar things to some of these different social justice groups. Quote, it is now commonplace for big businesses to weigh in on current events and signal their support for social justice, often at the demand of employees. But with Israel fending off the worst surprise attack on its soil since the Yom Kippur War, many corporate communication teams are tight-lipped. As silence underscores the extent to which left-wing corporate density initiatives are, sorry, corporate diversity initiatives are tied up with a so-called Palestinian cause, embracing a view of the world in which Palestinians are equated with racial minorities in the U.S. and Israelis with white oppressors. Google, for example, was forced to reassign its diversity chief after the Free Beacon revealed his anti-Semitic blog post. And I, actually, I'm going to read you one more paragraph. Quote, The corporate silence comes as the National Black Lives Matter group, one of the top recipients of corporate charity in 2020, has refused to disavow a local chapter's support for Hamas, including a now-deleted post praising the terrorists who mowed down Wow. Concert goers in southern Israel, they went there, and Coca-Cola, which donated 500000 to Black Lives Matter in 2020, and they did not respond to a request for comment or issue a statement about the attacks, end quote. So this is where they, they're making a, a very interesting point. They are going beyond what I was talking about, and they're saying, okay, well, these organizations, they have so many people that have a certain ideological bend that it's not necessarily that they don't care about these things, it's that they could be afraid that their people are not going to like the statement, their employees, or maybe even the employees are high up enough that they don't want to make these sort of statements. And yes, that is not good. Let's let's be clear. If they have the an obvious bias against somebody for especially this Google employee who was anti-Semitic, that, that's not okay. You don't want people that are anti-Semitic in your organization anyway. Let's be clear. It's America. You can be free to be whatever terrible type of person you want. I'm just saying, in my business, I wouldn't want people that have those kind of terrible ideas believing that one group of people is worse than the other, uh, just inherently based on inherent characteristics like their race. You know, that maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. But... The point they're getting at here is that it's not only that they're captured in the media sphere, they're not just captured by the market, quote-unquote, the people buying their products, they're actually captured from the inside. And when they put it that way, I am more sympathetic to the idea that maybe this is why they're not making these comments, but it still comes down to the ultimate fact that, hey, we should not be looking for these comments from the people who are doing our services, like Deutsche Bank, okay? I want to go into Deutsche Bank. I want to get a nice premium loan with a good interest rate. I want to start a savings account for my kids one day, so on and so forth. I don't care where you stand on politics. So even if they are captured and some of the people are left-wing in these corporations and the conservatives don't like it, guess what? How about you make it more painful for them to virtue signal on one side or the other, and then those people will realize, hey, I may have a left-wing perspective, but this is a business. This is not the place to advocate. This is not the place to be an activist. If I want to be an activist, I can go somewhere else and advocate for things. Maybe that's the right path forward. Instead of getting these virtue signalers to come over to your side of the aisle and pressuring them and saying that they have to come out against these things, 
Because, like I said, it's not a company's position to do that. If individuals want to do that, if individuals want to show their support, if governments want to show their support, 100%. Businesses, no. And let's be clear. Also, I take that back. If businesses want to actually make tangible differences and they want to, let's say, you know, give a little bit of extra money to charities or provide certain supplies to Israelis or Palestinians, Palestinians on the ground, sure, go right ahead. But making vapid, empty statements that you just put out there in order to get PR coverage, that's outrageous, okay? It's not the place of the... I would say it's not the place of practically any company, but, you know, there's probably someone out there that's willing to argue with me and would disagree. Otherwise, they wouldn't think it's important to do this sort of activism work on either side of the aisle. And like I said, we're starting to see it on the right as well as the long history career of the people on the left doing it. So that's just my opinion on that one. Let's jump to our second article that comes from the New Republic And this is from their soapbox section. Quote, will the Supreme Court make life worse for American homeless? That's the headline. And when I was reading through this one, it is is a pretty hefty one, no doubt about that. And I was also reading reading a book last night that was talking about how, you know how homelessness never really gets a proper solution, how it never really gets purposefully solved in a really meaningful way? And the author pointed out, well, it's mainly because there's not a great incentive for fixing homelessness for people that see it as a major issue, but they don't want to put their own dollars on the line in order to do it. They want a way to help people and make money off of it. And I thought that was extremely, extremely sad. It was kind of a cynical way to look at it, in my opinion. But there's probably some truth to it. And I thought it was interesting that that's why I chose this article for today, because, you know, We've seen homelessness grow and grow in certain particular cities that have certain policies. And now there is a case that's going up to the Supreme Court, which could affect how we view or how we deal with homelessness going forward. So it's something that we should probably at least talk about before it gets decided. And it's on the docket. We'll see how long it takes them to actually get to it. They are jam-packed so far at the beginning of this session, it feels like. So let's give a little bit of context here. Quote, four years ago, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a landmark decision in homelessness. The court ruled in Martin v. City of Boise that the Eighth Amendment forbids criminal charges against people for sleeping outdoors on public property if they have nowhere else to go. The decision limited local government's powers to arrest and remove homeless people from public spaces. Now, a broad coalition of cities, counties, and states across the western United States is asking the Supreme Court to overturn that ruling. They claim that the city of Grant Pass versus Johnson, the appeals court's latest ruling, is making it even harder for them to address the homelessness crisis in states like California, Oregon, and Washington, or perhaps more accurately, to pretend that they're doing something about it. End quote. So, yes, you can, you can definitely see the framing here from... The writer of this article, they they know where they stand. They know where <laughs> they believe the right to be and how to stand directly in the right, calling out these people for, oh, yeah, they're trying to make change. They're trying to say that, well, this actually makes our job harder to get some things done or just to pretend that we're doing something. Like, come, I think that's a little bit of a, a backhanded stab, but obviously the New Republic, they do lean a little bit more left. They're a lot more empathetic to these sort of social issues. 
So, but the point is here that this last case has really hamstrung them up. Martin versus City of Boise. So, uh, the question becomes, if a person is sleeping out on the streets, and I'm going to go even more base than the article does here, because they said something very interesting here. The decision limits local government's powers to arrest or remove homeless people from public spaces. If Honestly, if you're a conservative, you may actually be more, if you're a pure-blooded conservative or someone who really loves smaller government, you may actually be completely okay with that in principle, oh, limiting the government's power in order to do something. But then the question becomes, okay, what are the critical functions of government to protect its people? One, protect from you know issues or violence home and abroad to enforce a social contract, or I take that more accurately, to be able to enforce contracts or have a legal system that keeps people from breaching other people's freedoms. And there are more depending on who you ask about the subject. And most people, or at least a lot of the conservatives, I would say there's three. There's on the liberal side, you would probably say, you know, guarantee human rights. There's a, there's a few more that they would list than just three. But going on those two alone, public safety and ensuring that other people's property is not violated and that there's a enforceable system of law that allows these citizens to interact and maintain their freedoms, their personal property, their private you know, intuition. All this sort of uh, is encapsulated in that last one. So does this Martin v. City of Boise, does it violate that? Does it fall under the, pur- the actual purview of government in order to solve the issue of homelessness in certain communities? And... I think it goes back and forth. Are homeless people really a major threat? Do people need to be protected against them? I would say in some cases, and let's be clear, I use major threat. It, let's say they're a problem that address that is hurting the safety of a community. One could argue, yes, if there's mentally unstable homeless people, maybe they attack or uh, unleash a little bit of their unhappiness, their sadness, or maybe they have a mental episode and they hurt somebody, so you want to encourage the services to these people to ensure that the populace around them actually doesn't have to feel the negative repercussions of having that homeless population. Uh, Some people would argue that's too much government intervention, other people wouldn't, but there's that option. Also, the possibility that if they're using substances, which we have seen with a lot of different homeless populations, there could be needles that are left on the ground. That's not safe for kids. That's not even safe for normal people. Imagine if it's a dirty needle and you get HIV or AIDS from it. So there's there are a few different arguments that you could say, yes, it does fall within the purview of the government in order to protect the population. But also there's the other aspect of it, which is they're specifically talking about on public property, not pu- private property. So it's not like they're demanding that the local grocery chain has to allow these homeless people to live or sleep right on their property on the curb or the uh, they have to let them into their building. They're, you know, they're not violating that person's private property rights directly in that case. So there's a little bit of back and forth here. And I think that this is important to establish this one because we are talking about government intervening in the homelessness crisis in almost every single 
situation. I mean, there are different nonprofits. There are different groups that help homelessness or help homeless people get out of homelessness. But overall, a lot of people view it as the government's job because they have the resources, time, money, and they're trying to protect their populace. So a lot of people just shove it off into the government and leave it there. So this is going to be a government solution one way or another, or at least that's how it's framed nowadays. So it's really important which way the Supreme Court comes down on this one. So I want to run you through what the Supreme Court is, at least what they argue the Supreme Court is likely to do here, and maybe a little bit more history about it specifically. Quote, the Supreme Court has occasionally used the Eighth Amendment to strike down criminal laws that target characteristics instead of conduct. So what they would argue here, and I'm, I'm breaking from the reading of the article for a second, what they would argue here is that being homeless is a characteristic. It is not a contact. They are not, sometimes they're not choosing to be homeless. They are not purposely uh, choosing to be malicious where they sleep. They just have to sleep somewhere. They get tired. They fall asleep there. That would be along those lines of argument. Quote, in the 1962 case, Robinson versus California, the court ruled in favor of a defendant who had been convicted under a state law that made it illegal to be addicted to the use of narcotics. Justin Potter Stewart, writing for the majority, likened this to criminalizing a medical condition and wrote that it would be unconstitutional unconstitutional for someone to serve one day in prison for the crime of having a common cold. So what the argument nowadays would be, it's unconstitutional for somebody to serve one day in prison just for simply being homeless. And I think that there, that argument could go pretty far. Now, let's be clear. I, there is personal agency in this as well. Can we say that 100% of homeless people are homeless because they are there because of a terrible situation? No, we can't say that. Some homeless people choose to be homeless because there are benefits in certain places. Now, let's be clear. It's a very limited number of them. A lot of people who are homeless have some sort of mental issue or they've fallen on their luck. But guess what? There's also opportunities to apply for jobs when you're homeless. There are different organizations that will help you get a little bit, you know, maybe a nice little suit or help you get cleaned up or help you apply. There are different soup kitchens as well. So it's not as though there's no personal agency here. It's not as though there's not at least some partial ability in order to change the situation. Now, yes, I understand a lot of people are addicted to drugs, and if you're addicted to drugs and you're using all your money for uh, a spoonful of heroin, then it's going to be very hard in order to pay for a suit and all these different processes in order to pick yourself up, no doubt. And I'm not, I don't want to criminalize people for being homeless and addicted to drugs because that's just a double whammy. But there is personal agency here that needs to fall into this conversation as well. Completely from a legal standpoint, no, you cannot make it illegal simply to be homeless. But when we talk about this in a social aspect, beyond the legal system, we have to encourage people that are homeless, that are have fallen on hard times. One, we have to help them with different services. You know, I'm not saying give every single person that you see on the street a dollar. You don't always know where that's going to go. But if there's one person who you walk past every single day on your way to work in one of these major cities and just start a rapport with them, make them a little bit happier, provide a little bit of happiness in their life, maybe grab them a sandwich every once in a while, maybe ask them to come with you and sit at the local coffee shop and just talk to them. 
because allowing them to have a little bit of hope, allowing them to know that somebody cares about them, maybe they can start putting a little bit more love, time, effort, and love into themselves. If they know that they're loved, or at least someone cares about them, they can, it makes it easier for you to care about yourself. And just, okay, I know I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but there are things that we can do in order to help this situation, no matter how small they are, that don't have to fall within the confines of government. And that's why I was really frustrated when I was going through this article, because the New Republic makes it seem like it is something that only government can solve, and this is not the case. I'm not saying I'm the most generous person ever. I am not saying I am perfect at all, but... There are things that we can do to have a change in this world. It doesn't have to come down to big daddy government. And also, in this case, if homelessness is something that really touches your heart, that you really, really care about, go start an organization. Pull some people together. Get some funding from some of your family members or some people in the community. Do a little bit of small fundraising and be the change you want to see in the world. This doesn't have to just fall on the government. And this sort of framing, this sort of battle that's coming up in the Supreme Court, how it's going to be framed as the ultimatum with the headline that reads, will the Supreme Court make life worse for homeless people, America's homeless? They very well could. The government is so entangled in our lives. They have so many different ways of going about things that, yes, them interacting with the problem, them intervening could definitely make things worse. But that doesn't have to be the sole headline. It could be, uh, is the Supreme Court going to make America worse? What can we do to make it better? And I don't know. I just, I've, I fall into that. Maybe I'm a little hopelessly optimistic on this one particularly, but it just, it frustrates me when we believe that government has all of the solutions. There are outside companies, efforts, organizations that could do things. All right, so we're going to talk about a very, very long article in a very short amount of time that also comes from the New Republic. They love writing long articles, and it's called, Hey, Democrats, here's a winning 2024 message on a silver platter. So they start by talking about what is going on in the Supreme Court again. Oh, my gosh, I know. Multiple Supreme Court cases, it's almost as if people on one side of the aisle when the institution is uh, leaning one, you know, a little bit of a different way. It's almost as if they want to call them out and really draw attention to these sort of things. So the New Republic, I talked about this, I believe, last week, has a court case coming up or has commentary on a court case coming up between the Customer Financial Protection Bureau, which I would just call CFPB from now on, and these... um, really, I don't want to say scummy, but these low-tier payday loan companies. And there's this idea that, okay, hey, the CFPB, their funding is kind of just floating all over the place. They're not actually, they don't have to go through an appropriations process. They just get an inflation-adjusted amount that's unconstitutional because it's violating the appropriations clause of the Constitution, which is not true whatsoever, because at the end of the day, one, Congress could come in and change it, but two, Congress actually passed it. So guess who has the power of the purse? Congress. Guess who can pass budgets for certain things? Congress. They're not saying they have an unlimited budget. They're saying they have a fixed budget going year to year, 
And if they really wanted to change something, if they really didn't like the way it was structured or the way they're getting paid, then Congress could once again step in and change it. So there's this battle going on. And there's a correlation here. There's something bigger here, which is what does the Customer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, actually do? It protects customers. Wow, look at look at that. It's almost in the name. It actually serves a certain segment of the populace that has been taken advantage of by payday loan makers. I believe since it was founded in around 2009, it's recouped about $17.5 billion for customers. So that's that's not a necessarily a huge number. It's not a small number either. But the idea here is, okay, we're protecting the little guy against the big corporations, the big banks, the data brokers. You know, they're protecting ordinary people. And what the New Republic is saying is, hey, guess what? People like that. People like it when you come in and you protect them. When you don't overreach and take their stuff, but rather you actually give back to them things that were taken from them, you actually protect the people's rights and their property which is part of the government's, I would say, one of their core tenets, as I highlighted in the last article, then that's actually a winning message. That is one way that you can go forward and you can really, really take advantage of this sentiment going into 2024. And I think while it is a 100% true that, hey, if you protect the people, if you look out for the little guy, they're more likely to to vote for you. I also think it's extremely hard to implement on a policy level. I mean, a lot of policies that have been put in place are supposed to help people, and then it ends up being more government spending and caused different inflationary periods. Also, people on both sides will always find issues with it. Some progressives will say it won't go far enough, and some Republicans will obviously frame it however they're going to frame it. So it's not quite as simple as saying, hey, look out for the little guy on your win 2024. But their overall argument is right now they have a good opportunity to seize on this moment, to really say, okay, hey, look what the CFPB has done in the past few years, defend it because it is one of their agencies and they probably don't like the fact they have filed a, I believe it's either a amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, or it could just be a brief by parties involved because it is one of their agencies. But they have filed a brief about how it's important. Maybe they could capitalize on it going forward, say, hey, look what our CFPB has done, not just the organization overall, but look what we've done. And they could keep on rolling and really make it look like they are a pro-little guy kind of administration. I would argue that doesn't necessarily hold up under scrutiny because they have increased regulations in certain industries, which means that companies are going to have to pay more money to comply, therefore stripping a little bit of money away from that that they could give to their employees or adding on extra employees that aren't for specific, you know, different regulation compliance sort of things. And also just the way that this government has spent or handled the financial problem and, you know, letting the Fed, the Fed is its own institution, but maybe not pressuring them to really slam on the brakes, throw those interest rates up a little bit higher, a little bit faster to get us back into a point where we are actually recovering and our GDP is going up and inflation is actually going down instead of staying steady. I would say all of those things don't necessarily help the little guy, but in a time like that, why not take any battle you can on in order to say that you are helping the average everyday Joe? Because that is what Joe is all about. Joe Biden, average everyday Scranton Joe. 
All right, so let's jump to our final article. It's the Daily Delight that comes from Paw Tracks. And this one is a video of a Great Dane proving that dogs can be better seatmates on a plane than people. And, you know, honestly, I've gone back and forth. I don't know. Dogs on a plane, it it feels like it's a little bit much sometimes. I don't want to necessarily throw them underneath. I know everybody has their dogs and they want to bring them with them. But this dog seems to be well-behaved, but not all dogs are well-behaved. It's an interesting conversation going forward. But there's no doubt that this dog is absolutely adorable. And there's a TikTok video highlighting all of it. I'll just read you one quote from the article here. Quote, one of life's greatest joys is seeing dogs all around us as we go about the day, even in unexpected places. This particular airline passenger was surprised and thrilled to spot a Great Dane in the airport and subsequently on the plane. While it seems like such a big guy might be having a trouble time fitting into small seats, he managed to pull off his whole travel in style. And if you want to see any of the cute videos of this guy, you know, the TikTok video, or you want to read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find absolutely all of them. Also down there, there's a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. Yes, I'm aware Google Podcasts is going away. But for right now, until it's completely ended, it is still there so you can find it. And there's the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.